Hey everybody, welcome to the New World Pictures podcast bonus episode. We are going to talk to Alan Holzman again. This is our second interview with Alan Alan Holzman, part two, part two. <laughs> because uh, that's true. <laughs> part two, the return of part two. <laughs> because we talked to Alan last month, um, where we talked to him specifically about Grunt, that we also ended up talking to him about Out of Control and Forbidden World, which are a couple other movies that he that he did for New World. But we wanted to talk to him about his entire New World career. So our Alan Holzman part two, part one was <laughs> came out. <laughs> Two weeks ago. And that was really when we talked about phase one into phase two. This is Alan had talked about how he had had three phases at New World Pictures. The first one being when he was just an editor. We talked about how he edited Candy Stripe Nurses and Crazy Mama. And then he went away, came back when Roger called him to edit Battle Beyond the Stars, which he has now written a book about called Celluloid Wars. So get ready. We're going to be giving away a signed copy of this book. Get yes. excited. What? Follow us on the what? socials. That's right. Yeah. Huh. Uh, but this episode, we're not only going to talk about Celluloid Wars. Alan's actually even going to be reading some sections from this book. But we're going to go on mm-hmm. and then and also talk about Battle Beyond the Stars, which was we just talked about that movie last week. So listen to that episode, too, if you haven't. And then we t- we're going to talk about his work on Smokey Bites the Dust and Firecracker. He's going to filter in some stories about Apocalypse Now somehow. (laughs) And then we're going to get some more stories about Forbidden World, a.k.a. Mutant and Out of Control. And then we're going to talk about an unexpected, what I call a fourth phase of Alan's New World career, where he did some work for New World and sort of a freelance kind of basis, as well as some other non-New World films like Critters 2 and others. So we'll talk to him a little bit about that and then how he got into documentary work that he's doing now, where which he has won Emmys for. And, uh, you know, so a huge part of his career and also an extremely touching story about his second daughter's birth, which is just another reason why it's so great to talk to Alan, because he is just so open and ready to talk about the ups and downs of his life. And uh, it's just a great episode. You guys are in for a real treat. It's uh I can't wait. It's got some. <laughs> Mark's never ever heard, even though yeah. he was there. Yep, he's unaware of what's going to happen. He's hearing it for the first time. <laughs> I he's can't. hearing part two, part two for the first time. Yeah, part, but it's my part one, of part two, part That's two. Right. That's so, right. man, Mark has not you, heard even part one. Can, can we of hurry part this up? Two. I want to get into so, it. Let's. I, can, I really want to listen. Now he has. You have to go back and listen to part one of part two before you get to part two of part two. So you've got. So a I've got to do. I've got to do a pre-listen of part one, part two, <laughs> before part two, part two, which will for right. me still be part one. But really, but, part one B, because part one A is the pre of part two. You're going to hear yourself in this and go, "God, I was there." <laughs> it's going to be fascinating. Do I talk? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I hope you're ready for this. Uh, this is us again talking for a second time again to Helen Holzman. I think what's fascinating about Battle Beyond the Stars is that it's so ambitious uh, for Roger Corman. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like Roger was not prepared for how a movie of this scale could be produced the Corman way, 
with a fixed release date and a script that John Sales wrote where he said, just write the movie, just write whatever you want. Don't worry about budget. And, and then he's going to try and make this release date in a very short amount of time. By today's standards, it would be, it would never even be done. Cause it's well, we, were, just... we were going up against uh, empire strikes back. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they were coming out, they came out in May. And, you know, if you don't come out during the summer, you, you lose, you lose the right. kids. So, you know, his, he was aiming for June and it eventually came out beginning of August. So he still made the summer. Right. Uh, and, and that philosophy you express, he does it with all the films. He tells the writers don't write for the budget, you know, you know, I want you to write the movie in your mind and we'll figure out how, how to make it. Mm-hmm. So that philosophy went over and, and, and uh, you know, he hired, you know, um, the special effects department was really quite br- br- brilliant. And, uh, but no, but, you know, we were at the beginning of the computer camera, the uh, Elegon, sure. right. and it's like how do you do flybys and, and, uh, and then you have to, Categorize because the, the star fields, the star fields were done just with black velvet, you know, and and poking holes in it, you know. Right. But you had when you're going away, you have to go away from a certain, you know, distance from if the star field is where it is, it doesn't look like it's moving, but you can't make it move regularly. You have to, you know, do it a certain way. And the Elecon repeated the movement, but it was always breaking down. Uh, but the model builders uh, took a long time. And they were really great. And they, they, the Scotex do an interview at the end of the book and um, right. talk yeah. about how what they did was they, they didn't have time to make the models. You don't design the models. You can design it, but then you have to, but you, you have to, you can't make that design. You have to create the design in the making and then do the, the design. And they took all the model sets of all the battleships and planes, all the things you do as a kid and, you know, gluing stuff together, all these little parts, and you put them all in a pile. You don't try to make the thing. <laughs> yeah. You create your little spaceship out of these yeah. toy toys. And um, they all did that except for Jim Cameron, who spent almost the whole time doing the mothership. And he really worked on it forever and ever. And it's the first and only ship with breasts. You know, <laughs> but yeah. the yeah. being non-silly, it really worked out well because that that ship is in the shot in the vo- movie all the time. It's the hero ship, and he and yeah. he and Roger used it and recycled it for for space raiders. So well, he, he I'm, was happy. I, to... I'm I'm the you know I'm the cause of that. Oh, re- oh really? When he gave me my break to do Mutant, which then became Forbidden World. You know, he he there was a. Um, you know, he asked me after battle, he asked me to edit Galaxy of Terror. And right. I kept saying, I've done everything for you I can as an editor. I I need to direct, you know, and, and um, I need to, I, I should direct. I mean, I deserve to direct. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, he, and, and, he, and he said, can you stutter and direct? And, uh, and I said, well, uh, um, I, I stutter less when I'm directing because I'm in charge, which was true, but I still stutter, but it's in the act of communicating, which is more than most directors do. And he said, <laughs> you have a point there, Alan. <laughs> 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 I'm going to put you through the Roger Corman School of Filmmaking. Right. But, but, and, but how, how so, were you responsible for Space Raiders? Well, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll, I'll get there in a second. Okay. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so, um, so the first thing I did 
Joe Dante and Alan Arkish wore high top tennis shoes. So that's the first thing I did. I got my pair of high top tennis uh-huh. shoes. Of course. <laughs> and it's really funny. Uh, uh, a friend of a friend is, was the Harvard, um, Rob Morris was a teacher at Harvard. And he's made a couple of really great movies. And um, he was doing a news thing about Corman. And he came out to interview the, the new directors from Corman. And he interviewed Dante and Arkish and me. And, they, and he sat us together and we all had the same shoes. And <laughs> they were really offended that I was wearing their shoes, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> so it was not a joke, you know, <laughs> for them. Um, anyway, so, and they talk really fast and they're so knowledgeable, especially Joe, he's like an encyclopedia. And Alan is just the hippest guy. So they were just, and I didn't say a word. I was just sitting there in the middle. And the question was, what are the ingredients in a Roger Corman movie? And they were listening off, you know, crashes, blah, 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 blah. And they forgot one thing. And it was the only thing that I said. And here I am with the shades and the same, not saying anything. I said, and sex. <laughs> uh-huh. It's a key ingredient. It's a key ingredient. But anyway, so the first assignment, I waited, I called them every Friday with a, a bottle of wine. Because when I was drunk, I didn't stutter. And I knew he wouldn't pick up my phone right away. And he would call me back, hopefully, by the end of the day. And he would call me back like three hours later. And I was had at least a half a bottle by then. And I would say, hi, Roger, do you have anything for me? And he'd go, not yet. And I said, OK, thanks. That was it. Hmm. And then wow. so one of the so two and a half months into it, he had something which maybe it was a little earlier, um, which was Smokey eats, eats the dust or bites the dust. Smokey bites, Smokey the, bites dust. the dust. Yeah. Uh, right. It was a ripoff of Eat My Dust. Right. Which Roger didn't mind doing because uh, that was a Ron Howard thing and he gave Ron Howard his break. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. Anyway, so it was to do additional scenes. It would, no, it was to do second unit for that. And that film was put together from different car crashes in his car comedies and they had different police cars with different decals but the same car basically yeah and uh and so i was to take the people from the talking to the crash and like as a stutterer what is the biggest nightmare you have to talk on a walkie-talkie everyone's (laughs) listening to you (laughs) oh my gosh so here's the workaround i was a roller skater Mm-hmm. So I skated from camera to car and talked to the drivers directly. And they loved it because no one ever talked to them. It was always, they always heard things being ordered on a walkie-talkie. Oh, and they wow. really liked me for that. And the Aww. first night I had, I said, get closer, get closer, and then crash. Oh, <laughs> no. crash the car my first night. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I'm going to have to call Roger in the morning and say I crashed the car. But they stayed up all night and fixed it. Huh. Wow! Amazing. Yeah. yeah, I think I need so, to. Uh, I need to start. I need to take up roller skating. Is what I'm learning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You can roller skate over Jack in the Box and keep yourself up all night <laughs> roller skating. <laughs> so Chuck Griffiths was directing it, and Chuck Griffiths was the greatest writer writing, you know, a uh, little shop of horrors and mm-hmm. bucket of blood, you know, and but, but you know. Roger hires two kinds of directors. Those are on the way up and those are on the way down. And Chuck was definitely on his way down as a director. And even though, and, and, and so, and Chuck 
you know, um, I hated second unit directors with a passion because they were always trying to prove themselves to Roger. And uh, so he hid the decals every morning. So I had a plan an hour every day to find the decals. And Roger gave me as my art director, I had one art, one person, one person art department uh, who was Coppola's masseuse during Apocalypse Now. And I, one of the films I was editing for Fred Weintraub was Checker, Flag or Crash, which was in the Philippines with Joe um, Walking Tall, the big guy. Joe Don Baker. Oh, Joe Don Baker and Susan Sarandon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were there while Apocalypse Now was editing. And uh, we were wrapping up because the monsoons were coming. And they, because they come at the same time every year, and they weren't. And I asked the uh, editor, Why aren't you packing up? And he said, Francis said the rains aren't going to come this year. (laughs) But but anyway, uh, the masseuse, her boyfriend was a member of that tribe Mm -hmm. at the end, and that was no makeup, they were real, really. And it was a four-day hike to get there. And Bacopola arrived by helicopter. And when he was finished, they, they thought he was the god from the sky. And they built a whole camera out of bamboo and like trying to call him back. But anyway, she, uh, Francis owed her a favor. And she wanted to get into art directing. And so Roger assigned her to me. And it was, mm-hmm. we got along great because I love the Philippines. And so... Um, after that, then I did additional scenes for a Kung Fu movie. Oh, I, I also edited um, my the action scenes. And Larry Bach was cutting with uh, Chuck. And, and Chuck was really funny. He was going to go, Roger's going to hate this. This is, And they were laughing and cracking up. We go, Roger's going to hate this. Roger's going to hate this. He was funny. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so I had to do additional scenes for a Did, did Roger hate it? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So I do additional scenes for a kung fu movie. So now we get back to Candy Stripe Nurses, right? Yes, and the best scene. So in Candy Stripe Nurses, Candace Rielsen's assignment was to help the rock star Owen Bowles get it up because it was one of the first public cases of. Uh, erectile dysfunction, which the term didn't even exist then for that. He was just sure. to get it up. Uh, and they, they made a thing of being embarrassed to say that word. And, um, but she succeeds at the end. And uh, now Roger's big on co- coverage because he ha- can control the edit that way. Right. And Alan Howell made sure that there was no coverage so he could control <laughs> the thing this way. Right. And so at the end, Owen Bowles makes love to his two go-go dancers and and the nurse, and she gets disgusted and you know walks away. But he's there making love to them, and he's his pants are on and he's dry humping the girls, and it's only in one. It's in two wide shots. Yep. One from looking at the heads of everyone with heads pointed, and the other from the side. Mm-hmm. And there's no way. So you couldn't really blow things up in those days because it had to be quality controlled and you know but there was no coverage it was, that was it you know you could cut back and forth between the two wide shots mm-hmm. that was it so he calls the director back into the room after the last note se- se- session and his name was alan as well and he says 
Alan, I don't know what you plan to do or where you plan to go from here, but I want you to remember one thing. When a man fucks, he takes his pants off. Hold <laughs> <laughs> on, I have to note this for steaming. <laughs> it's it's uh, a guy telling you that in the next letter, you know what I mean? Like, it just feels like amazing. So I have to do... Um, a love scene and an action scene. So for the love scene, I write a scene where the woman who's the star, Firecracker, yes. is called Naked Fist Farn. And yeah. she takes off the guy's pants with Kung Fu knives. It's and, amazing. It's such I, an amazing scene. And I read it to Roger on the phone. And he goes, Alan, that's just genius. genius. Uh, <laughs> it's so wild. And, and then for the chase scene, I have them these two guys hitting on her and chasing her into the lumberyard. Yeah. It's just a lumberyard. And every time they have a skirmish, she loses one article of clothing. <laughs> and I did 96 setups in one night. Wow. I broke Roger's record of 87. Yeah. Wow. And I called him at, you know, I was there in you know, the morning after being up all night, and, mm-hmm. you know, waited around to his coming into the office. And I called him and I said, I beat your record. <laughs> and was he impressed <laughs> no he said that someone else has 135 <laughs> what? Come on. he had two sets two separate sets and was calling action on one going to but i i set up two different sets as well not sets but i would i would rehearse an action sequence and then they would dress it while I was shooting the other one. So I was going always doing like okay. two things at once. And Jim Cameron actually observed that. He was working on Galaxy of Terror then, and he used that style. Huh. Really, you know, that was the last thing I ever taught Jim. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm responsible on battle for saving Jim's job. Um, yes, yes, you are, um, yeah. And and that's chapter three of Celluloid Wars, that's which is crazy. called Rogers, the Rogers, no, Rogers Wrath and Discovering Jim Cameron. Or something that's like. right. That's right. Leads uh, <laughs> leads to Jim Cameron. So uh, Rogers Wrath leads to James Cameron. Thank you. Um, and uh, so we were doing the front screen pr- projection, and Kubrick had done it on two thousand and one, and so we were trying to replicate that. And uh, uh, front screen is same basis as rear screen only you're projecting from the front but you the naked eye can't see it because mm-hmm. the screen is filled with prisms that right. bring all the light back into the lens and it's a better view like the whole opening of uh, 2001 with the apes is front screen pr- projection mm-hmm. So it came out dark and we had a French cinematographer, hence it came out dark. (laughs) (laughs) And so I called Roger and said, it came out dark, we have to reshoot. And he said, I never reshoot, make it work. (laughs) And then I walk across the stage that night and there's empty and except for one guy slumped over an A-frame table, looking really depressed. And I walked over and I said, are you okay? And it was the guy who designed, who painted the slides, painted the, made the paintings, converted into slides for the front screen. And I looked at them and they were just fantastic. They were just absolutely beautiful. And so I, I called the producer, Marianne Fisher, and I said, I have to talk to Roger. He's got to reshoot this. And he said, she said, Roger's having dinner is against the law to call and disturb him during dinner. You can't do it. I said, I have to, they're going to strike the set. I have to talk to him. 
and I insisted and he, she put me through and I went through the whole spiel and he said, Alan, for the last time, I never reshoot, make it work. And I said, well, it's this guy's last day. You know, uh, you got to hire him. He's too ta ta talented and have him design a set or something, you know? And, and he said, okay, what's his, find out who, who is he? And I said, what's your name? And he said, Jim Cameron. Wow. Hmm. Wow. And That's he did design a couple story. of sets. And so, and so Roger gave him twelve dollars. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> to, do, to do the Cayman set, where he's got Amelia right. strung up and uh -huh. know, uh, cap captured, and so he got car he went to the Long Beach and he got carnation boxes, and that was the floor, so he could put steam through it. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. And then yep. he got egg crates, and that became the walls. Mm -hmm. Wow! Amazing. 12 bucks is amazing. best 12 bucks ever spent. right right <laughs> it's it, it while we're on the subject of your book as well since that that story is also covered in the book i wanted to to talk about the working conditions because again this book is fascinating for people not only just interested in filmmaking but of course for nerds like us who love all things new world this was fascinating to get an inside you know inside peek and how things were made the new world way. So um, we have a, I wanted you to read a section of your book that shows what it was like to, to work at New World, which is, uh, I think, the very first section I marked for you on page 24 and 25. Some, some of the shit I had to deal with today. Yeah, correct. <laughs> correct. <laughs> okay. Uh, shit number one. The, the, uh, the humanoids moved, moved in. R rumor ha has it humanoids from the deep is the worst film Roger has produced in his entire career. There are three person editing team wants to move into our space, working side by side in our section of the special effects shop. Chuck said, and Chuck the special effects supervisor said, we don't have enough juice for two moviolas. They'll keep blowing the fuse. Shit number two. <laughs> I arrived at the stage to find that there was no editing equipment. We're not scheduled to start until the end of the week, at which time the editing room will somehow magically be filled with rewind, synchronizers, splicers, trim bins, shelving units, leader, splicing tape, editing machines, grease pencils, gloves, coating machine, reels, spring clamps, and the perennial squawk box, a dreadful speaker with a built-in amp connected to a magnetic sound head on the second gang, of, on the synchronizer. By the end of the day, I managed to order all the basic editorial equipment and supplies. Shit number three. Roger said he'd pay us for only one day for an entire week of work. Good night, sleep tight. Who, who am I kidding? Editors don't sleep. <laughs> I mean, wow. that is just amazing a peek into how New World Pictures was running. I think it the really only other, is. it's such an amazing peek. And to be fair to Chuck, he was right. They kept blowing yeah. the fuses constantly. And you guys kept well, if you're about, editing next to Mark Goldblatt, who's trying to edit uh, Humanoids for the Deep. Now, now he, his whole aesthetic for editing Humanoids for the Deep was so bad he had to cut every eight to 12 frames. <laughs> so he was constantly breaking. <laughs> oh my, yeah. Because you're running, you're we, running like a, you're running the to run the wheel, it's like there's a there's like a break there. There's, there's a handbrake. Yes, correct. And you you slam on it and because you got to do it hard because you guess that you want it to go on the exact frame. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, um, and whenever we break at the same time, we blow the fuse. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And he's doing that every seven to eight seconds, you said? Yeah. Well, I, I, didn't, seconds? I didn't stop the machine as much. You know, it was like, yeah, I right. just, yeah. I like, 
but you know, he had his place and everything, but he was like, he was like, it was, the, but the humanoids became Roger's most successful movie of all time. For sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, but at the uh, time, which I think given is the budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what was fascinating is at the time, everybody was like, Oh no, this thing yeah, is be such ever. a disaster. And the, so- the funniest thing was the person in the humanoid suit and he had to go two weeks at night getting into this rubber outfit into the water, the cold mm-hmm. water cold dirty water and come out you know whatever it was and it was such a difficult thing that roger said if you do it i'll give you a job whatever you want on the next movie or crew job and what did he pick assistant editor yeah and and he had no experience as an assistant editor Uh, to hear him on this huge space movie with an assistant editor who's very nice extremely nice and bright but he didn't have the experience mm -hmm, yeah oh jeff the, the the your dealings with him Ugh. throughout the book is just it's <laughs> it's so tough because like you said you don't have a lot of time you know you 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 gotta no you, i know you, you gotta work you gotta get this stuff done to shepherd someone along who doesn't know what they're doing it, it just slows everything down mm-hmm. so um, but- I, I i i talked to amy heckerling who um uh who's a friend and um she um um I mean, she, she worked on my stu- student film. Uh, she drew t- tattoos uh, by hand. It was really nice. Because <laughs> um, it was about a t- t- tattoo artist. Right, um, right. So her assistant um, uh, was looking for work. And so she um, uh, came to work and she had experience. And I was able to hire her. I, I think it was for 200 a week for a six-day week. And, um, and it was only supposed to be for two weeks. And Mary, Mary, Mary Ann said, just don't say anything. If we don't, if we don't say, say anything, Roger won't notice it and we'll keep her. <laughs> so that's how that works. <laughs> oh, but the, this, that part of it also fascinated me because the, the, the drama of also just trying to find a space for you to edit is another element of the movie that I think people don't realize. That is unbelievable, yeah. Yes. And so then we, we get to... Uh, um the well, lumber yard floods which is something that that they talked yeah, about and the ceiling it, leaked well if i can interrupt i, yeah, I was planning this the special effects place was a rented space beautiful space a modern space an open area on you know, on uh, right near the beach and uh it was only a temporary space because once the film was finished shooting special effects would move over to the stage so we were editing in that place. Right. And so, yes, there was a flood and there was no, I mean, you say that it was the soundstage and there was a swing stage to use as another soundstage, but there was no, it wasn't soundproof. Mm. And, and it was, it was kind of a lumberyard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. hard to get away from that one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so 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 he decides to move you to a room near the stage and so this room is it's just comical what what you are dealing with once you get to it so this is the next section that that uh, i marked for you where they put you in finally move you over there and this is the accommodations that you get well there there was a huge room where they held all had all the costumes yes Mm -hmm. right and then there was a tiny side room to that room (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> um, there are costumes everywhere, I complained. 
He wants you in the back, because I thought that was the room. There are costumes everywhere, I complained. He wants you in the back room, Clark said, with Clark, who was, who was a P, PA at the time. Clark said with a turn of, of his head, indicating a much smaller room. I lost, my, I lost my window and my big room with high ceilings for a minuscule room with overhead fluorescent lights and no windows. You're kidding. That's what he said. It was at this point that I noticed an odor foul enough to turn one's stomach. What's that smell? It's from the ceiling, Clark answered. It leaks and the rug holds the moisture. What about the sound? We're close to the stage. Just keep the doors closed. <laughs> the stench from the rain is unbearable. I can't work here. That's what he wants, Clark said. <laughs> oh, I mean, so that is like, it's just miserable. <laughs> So and and not and, and I and I and I I'm just going to quickly summarize because it's it's a saga in the book. But then he does kind of move you to this room, and again, you're like these rooms are unacceptable. And you're, I think you're talking to to Marianne, and you you make a you make a change, and you decide to take down a wall and make it more amenable to an actual editing space. And once Roger finds out, he's so upset that you tore down a wall. That I think you say in the book, he basically goes, sees it, sees the walls down, and he peels off in his car out yeah, of the burns out of, rubber out of the lumber yard. Apparently, he saw it, and I'm sorry, he saw it first, and he said, "Shit!" And <laughs> then he got in his car and peeled off. Yeah. So the funny thing was that the, he had the the production design team make the editing rooms above the construction area. And uh, he wanted he wanted four individual spaces, so he, he like he doesn't want anyone watching him look at stuff. Uh -huh. and, but if you add it together, the movie, all the table, the trim bin, and the chair, and the person, there wouldn't be room to move. Right. Right. Yeah. So I said to the, the construction people, take down the walls <laughs> and only have one wall in the center that went two thirds of the way through, so it was a U shaped. Yeah. yeah. So there could be the illusion of privacy, but you know, you had space. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they and and they promised and they liked me and they said that they wouldn't tell Roger who did it. And so they said, Oh, one of the editors told us, I don't remember who. <laughs> <laughs> and then oh, Roger's Roger's solution was then to say, Oh, I'm gonna take that money out of your paycheck. No, he never he never talked to me about it. Oh, but but that is something in the book where he said he was going to take the money out of your paycheck, and you. Said oh, that's that that's what, right when, when. Oh, yes, I forgot about that. Yes, yeah. But but he never confronted me directly. I mean, right. it was right. to Marianne, and I refused. Right. Oh, to put back the walls. Yes, exactly. That's right, and I refused to do that, so they didn't put back the walls. Right, right. <laughs> but he never talked to me about it again, and and he really enjoyed the space when he was in it. You know, <laughs> it made sense, mm -hmm. and, and and like we had the coding machine. At the at the top of the U, or the bottom bottom of the U. So it, it was a really it was a great space. So but this is just time, and with the windows, there's one time I was so angry at the movie that I took a reel and I threw it out the window. <laughs> <laughs> and then you went, okay, I gotta go get. Oh, that. I guess I gotta go get that. <laughs> and you, so we saw you walking across the parking lot picking up a reel. <laughs> 
So this this sets up the situation you're dealing with just as an employee of New World Pictures, the situation <laughs> you're dealing with. But the other thing we were talking about, Mark and I were mentioning earlier that the book is so great at illustrating, is how much the editors has to deal with. As you said, the editor doesn't make the movie, but the editor has to work with so many different people. So you have to work with the the, the director and the producer and you know, and the special effects team in this case. Mm -hmm. And there's so many people we have to deal with. And right off the bat, the special effects, head of head of special effects, Chuck Comiskey, day one, almost day one. I think that's actually before you even day start one. editing. As soon as and, I met him. Yeah. And day one is telling you, you don't get my shots right. to work with. You're, you're not going to mess up my footage. I've had enough of you action guys. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and you're the editor. Like, and you keep trying wow. to tell him, I need your shots to edit the movie, though. <laughs> Was he going to? No, uh, I, I obviously haven't got to this part of the book yet. So. <laughs> it's just it's 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 just mind blowing because you keep trying to tell him and he keeps going. No, I have deal with Roger. I will. I would deal with the shots. You don't get the shots. And it's like it's just mind boggling because you're like, <laughs> all I want to do is edit this movie together, you know? I don't know what to say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, but, but, you know, Chuck, Chuck was, uh, he was an amazing designer mm -hmm. and he had the entire thing sto storyboarded. And I'm sure he had a history of people chopping up the shots. Sure. But, sure. you know, you know, there was no, I, I had to get the footage and I, I went, um, I went around him a lot. I went to the assistant effects editor who gave me stuff. Right. Uh, I couldn't go to the effects editor because she would lose her job. But the assistant was Tony Randall. Right. Right. And you know, so you, I, I found like I found some ba Barry Zetlin in ro rotoscoping. The, the the lone men on the totem pole, they were my friends. And right. I worked that area, and eventually, you know, I I, I did take take over the movie. Right. And um, but like the effects supervisor. You know, I knew that she wasn't doing her work and uh, she would always come in like around two o'clock carrying like eight box, eight film, film boxes as if she'd been to every lab in town. And I, I had to expose her and, and get rid of her because she was no good for the movie. Huh. And so I walked up to her and I kicked the boxes out of her hand. And these, if it were negative, I would be in so much trouble. <laughs> but they were they were all empty. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Because wow. she's just trying to make herself then, look busy, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was into, you know, the whole concept was like just loaded up with laser beams. So, a choreography of laser beams, you won't notice that it's the same ship, same shot over and over again. Just change the way the beams are. And I wanted the beams to come to the lens, make it exciting like mm -hmm. that. Sure. And, and the rotoscope guy was telling me, that's not realistic. <laughs> I just left. <laughs> What's realistic about a space laser beam battle? <laughs> Tell me, what is realistic? <laughs> um, then, so, so I, I, as a demonstration of how frustrated I was with that, there was an empty sparklets bottle in a long hallway, and I just kicked it down the hallway, yelling "fuck, fuck, fuck," and then so people listened to me after I threw a fit. <laughs> Okay, uh, writing Sorry. that one down. Writing yeah, that one that's down. another great tip. Great tip. Yeah. Um, Make sure it's empty. <laughs> <laughs> so you not only have the issues with the the head of special effects, but then also the director. 
uh, Jimmy T. Murakami, who this is his first live action direction that he's done. And so I wanted to point out an exchange you had. You there was a crew party that you the editorial wasn't even invited to, and and eventually you guys do get an invite and you go and you have a conversation with him. And this is how this is. I just think this this section just explains. Now you have to see this is their conversation with the director. You've dealt with special effects. Mm-hmm. Now this is the conversation with the director. I I I asked, are you pleased with the editing so far? No. But I like the action. It's the intimate scenes. Which scenes? There are too many to mention. I'll sit down with you for two to three weeks after the shooting and tell you everything I have to express, and I'll see if you can achieve it. I'm not going to tell you how to cut. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't cut the film with you, but I want you to know that my fate as a live-action director rests exclusively with you. I'm returning to the art world, and I'll wash my hands of the entire film if you don't edit it the, the right way if you cop out if you cut for roger if you don't bring out all the feeling that we experience on the set wow i don't want to tell you how to cut but if you don't do it exactly the way i want to <laughs> i will ruin your world well it's, it's not, well, he didn't express how he wanted to cut it's the exactly. experience they had on the set right felt right. was there not the fact that the shot never moved right right right, right. Moved, you know and the people didn't move and they were just standing yeah. there and, and like there's one great instance where if people are talking on the table, they're having the conference deciding how they should, how the planet, the people of Akir uh, should, should re- re- react. And it's, the planet's called Akira because it's a tribute to Akira Kurosawa. Because um, the plot was taken. Seven, seven Samurai. Samurai. Right. Uh, or uh, Mag- Magnificent Seven, as Roger yeah. likes to say, because Robert Vaughn reprised the same role that he had in Magnificent Seven. Yeah. Anyway, he didn't shoot this one guy, and he's he's there, and 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 there's no coverage on him. And I, I said, we need to get him. You know, he's got an important. All these the only lines were off camera, and he was sitting there. You know, and and he's Jimmy said, I I don't like him. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, it, this is the stuff you have to deal with as an editor. You're like, Jeez. I understand you may not like him, but it is it he's in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to draw some kind of parallel to my day job oh. and I can't. Yeah. Yeah. But Jimmy's storyboarded the entire movie and Unfortunately, he shot it at storyboards. It was like there were the different tap, 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 tableaus, but the, the, the craziness of the costuming and, and Dorinda Wood did the co- costumes. And mm-hmm. she, Roger, um, there's an interview with her at the end of the book, but Roger, uh, she was trying out for the job. She was a theater designer at LATC. And um, uh, Roger and, and Ed, the other producer, um, uh, um, said to her, this was on a Friday, if you can design all the costumes by Monday, we'll take a look, and if we like it, we'll give you the job. And she did it. And they wow, gave her the wow. job, and the, the, the costumes are as she d- designed them. It's just amazing. Just design them all in a single and, weekend. And, 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 and then she used LA Theater Department, uh, LATC Theater, their department for a lot of the co- costumes. Huh. So they really l- lucked into that. Wow. 
Yeah, I, I just thought, you know, I have the disc of this movie and I've watched the, you know, behind the scenes documentary several times. And after finishing the, your book, I was like, OK, I'm going to watch this again because I feel like why didn't I hear half of this stuff? And that's the thing that the, the and you're in that as well. But the behind the scenes only goes into some of the issues. And a lot of it's like seemingly like cute stuff like, well, we didn't have a lot of money, which is true, you know, but like this the book is like wow it's so much more in depth and while i don't want to spoil exactly what happens at the end of the book because i think that should be saved for the people reading it but i do want to say that there's a there's a section where the movie's not going well and again not covered in this documentary and you find a dejected roger corman at one point who basically is spending all the money i guess that he has he's laid it all on the line for this movie and he doesn't feel like it's going to come together I just thought it it wasn't a matter of feeling the special effects designer said we can't make the deadline. Yeah. We're we're not, we can't do all the shots. The problem was, you know, John Sales wrote, you know, a script where there were, there were a lot of more than one ship in a shot. There were a lot of three ships in the shot. Mm -hmm. All this choreography that just was very difficult to do in that time. And it was a pretty Mm -hmm. normal thing for a special effects movie to go over budget and to go over schedule. It was pretty much, you couldn't say it in the beginning, but they all did. Everyone did, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Star Wars even did. So it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, he was just playing the, the regular game, not there was a game, but it was true. You couldn't get it. You couldn't do everything that was written in that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you had to keep trying and saying you weren't doing it. And, Ch- and Chuck was really so, you know, nothing could pass without the quality being really precise and good. Right. He wouldn't have let something out. And, you know, he's still, he's been working with Jim Cameron in all his movies since. And Jim is a total per- perfectionist beyond belief. And mm-hmm. Chuck has been able to manage that and fulfill Jim's, you know, desires. So that's why Roger, Roger came out of that meeting of which I was not a part of, because I refused to put in slugs because I knew they weren't going to make it. I could tell from the very beginning they weren't going to make it. Mm-hmm. And I hated putting in slugs because um, I, I knew that it was an excuse for me. But like, uh, and, and so I would cut the scenes without the slugs. Right. And then after a while, I lost control of the movie. And the second editor, Bob Kaiser, took it over. And he put all these slugs in, green slugs and yellow slugs and blue slugs. And slugs are pieces of film that just have one color on it. A countdown. numbers on it. Yeah. He would read off the script. This is when Cayman's ship goes behind a mountain and explodes St. Eximin's ship, et cetera, you know, or faces Hammerhead, which comes over. And, and it's like people are going, wow, it's such a great movie. And I went, come on, you're just reading from a book, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so Roger was walking in the parking lot, dejected, and I didn't stutter. And I said, what's the matter? <laughs> and he said, Chuck said, we can't make it in time. And I got I had all my money invested in this and I can't, you know, I'm going to go under and I got to make it by the summer. Otherwise, I won't get the money back. And I said, you know, you can do it. We can do several kamikaze type runs at the main ship. We got all these character shots, all these flybys. And we can do a choreographed display of laser beams. And uh, but I have to have total control. I have to control every single department. And, and he said, if you he said, you can use my name, you know, I'll be your right hand man and i'll back you up for everything and you know let's do it and i did it 
Yeah, and I, I will say up. that that today, are you are you stayed up for days? I, I stayed up for four nights, and you know, wow. so in the first scene, the first battle scene, he stood up in the editing room and applauded. That's that is oh, nice. that is a lot of uh, Jack in the Box fish sandwiches. And... But I wasn't doing Jack in the Box then. <laughs> no, the Rose Cafe was there. Oh, okay. The first, you know, you know, designer coffee shop. I was doing. Cafe au lait. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fancy. Upgrade. <laughs> I was on espresso. I was the high wire. <laughs> but like, and I was, I would, I, and I, again, I really think people should get this book. I was looking at the movie today just because I wanted to look at some of those sequences as you talk about how you put it together. And I watched the scene and look at your, the way you wrote it out. And it's, and it's there. Like you did it. Like you, it's just fascinating to read it and look at it and be like, wow, this is how you figured out how to, how to do it. And it's, I just recommend if people get the book and take a look at it. Cause I, it's fascinating. It really is fascinating how you end it all. And uh, that leads us to, uh, as you moved on from battle beyond the stars, we're still in phase two. As you said, you went through the Roger Corman school of filmmaking and you did second unit on Smokey bites the dust and you did the firecracker uh, scenes, which are amazing. Um, I just love that. And Firecracker is like an interesting movie if you haven't seen it, but man, that scene, I, it makes I, it so I, worth it. I, I, I actually have to say, say just one, one thing. Sure. When, when it's, when it, the first night it played on a Friday night on Hollywood Boulevard, both scenes got a standing ovation. Nice. It was amazing. For, for Battle Beyond the Stars, you're saying? No, Firecracker. No, Firecracker. Okay, good. Yes. Both the yes. love scene and, and the fight scene. <laughs> they, yeah, I, I was I was really and I was trying to get the same effect with Mutant, but it backfired. It was going there, right? Right. The, theater, the people in the theater were wild. I can't tell you how wild they were. And Roger punched the guy and maybe take out the comedy and the, <laughs> right. not all the comedy. Yeah. Couldn't do that, but right, all the, right. All the big, the big, the big comedy. Soldier, you could go wild. Yes. Yeah. And, yes. Uh, and. And that's that's what we talked about last time. But we what we didn't talk about when it came to Forbidden uh, World and Mutant is that when you got the chance to start directing, it's because there was a the set was up for Galaxy of Terror. Jim designed the spaceship set. Yes, and it was um, they were shooting on it Monday through Friday. On Saturday, second unit was shooting, and then Monday it was a redress for a crash set, crash ship. Mm -hmm. So it meant that nothing was going on with the set in its pure form, which Jim Cameron designed for one day. So he came to me on a Tuesday and he said, Alan, you want to direct a whole movie, don't, don't you? And I said, yes. And he said, um, well, uh, if you can write, produce and direct a seven and edit a seven to eight minute opening of a space movie that can go anywhere, I'll give you a whole movie. And I said, <laughs> I'll give you uh, an astronaut and a robot. Yeah. <laughs> someone had uh, come into his uh, Don, I'm forgetting his last name, um, uh, uh, came into his office with the robots. So he was a ro robot mm -hmm. and he owed J Jesse Vint a movie. Right. So mm -hmm. that's what I had. So after so, so Black Oak Conspiracy. Said, so that's what I said. <laughs> we'll use the Nestor ship from Battle, which was the rarely used because it was not an attack ship and it's the first ship that went down. So I'll use the Nestor ship as their ship, and I'll use all the attacking, you know, uh, ships to fight. And they'll have, you know, a battle. They'll get, they'll you know, wake up the the astronaut from the freeze, do the battle, sure. and they get their assignment, which is voiceover, 
and they'll land. And that's that was the seven minutes. And that's still the opening sequence of the movie, yeah. right? Says it was, yeah. Hmm. yeah. And so is it, do you think it's but, because- But you... we had a fight over that, fight over that. And I lost that battle too, because I wanted the robot to stutter. Oh. Okay. And I wanted the robot to have, <laughs> to be broken down and have a voice you couldn't understand. Because he just talked platitudes. It's just all, you didn't matter. You know, he's just agreeing with you or disagreeing. You know, didn't, you heard a little bit. So I wanted to be a broken down and that didn't fly. And he changed it after yeah. uh, so many laughs to a, a kid's voice that was clean and it just yeah. still upsets me it's like i hate hearing those lines clean it just doesn't mm -hmm. certainly oh, far less robotic a robot a yeah come on robot. that no one's seen <laughs> that no one's done that but the funny thing is i've tried to get a stutter in every movie i've directed it's a small part and i've gotten approval and i teach the person to how to really stutter which is hard blocks, you know, and, and, and running starts and working around the word and it takes a while to say the word. And I swear to you, every single time the producer shows up on the set when that shot is being taken and they each said the same thing. Can you make him stutter faster? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, yeah. At which point I go, no, that's it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you know, in, in the commentary that you have for mutant, you'd actually mentioned that after, you know, you made mutant for him, for Roger, uh, you kind of moved on, but you kind of wish you had stuck around and maybe done another movie for him. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, it would have been much better. Uh, I, I made the leap too fast because Julia Phillips discovered me. Right. The producer for made... Close Encounters. And uh, yeah, she and Spielberg came away from Close Encounters with the same mission to do uh, an, a, a special effects alien movie for kids. And uh, she developed right. a brilliant we, script. The Ghost, Ghost World uh, that you talked about. The last Ghost time. Town, yeah. The Ghost Town, pardon me, yes. Yeah, and um, she introduced me around Hollywood as the stuttering director and Sidney uh, Pollack uh, approved of me for TriStar right. as the stuttering director. And then, and then that fell that fell apart because she was still and, on on still on drugs and you know yeah and she wanted more more money and she was exposed to doing drugs again and it was you know I was left in the lurch and uh, so then I took uh, um, then the new new world was purchased right uh, by Roger Bur Burlage and company and Bob Remy was made in charge as the top executive and he came from Paramount, I believe. Mm. And, um, and Fred was doing the movie for them. So he, that deal was already set up for out of control. Then was Fred already had a deal with them to, yeah. to do well, he that? Had, Fred did deals with foreign money. So he got investments from Yugoslavia mm. before the war or do, there, there was a lot of, I don't know. It's, the foreign money that was going around then, I don't know if it came from gun running or whatever. <laughs> it was cash around and foreign yeah. money that you yeah. can make a lot of money from if you were. Because, yeah, because you shot the movie in Yugoslavia, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Right. And so we spoke a little bit about this last time we spoke to you, but um, uh, so I don't want you to repeat yourself, but I did want to ask a couple questions. I repeat myself all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's um, another one. That's three. Yeah, that's three. That's three. Yeah. That's three, yeah. that's three yeah, for three Alex. Points. You, you mentioned in the first day uh, of the set that John Alonzo that kind of talked you into doing a shoot. This is what you told us last time. 
uh, shoot day that you, he said Fred wouldn't mind and, and ended up that Fred absolutely did mind. It sort of damaged your relationship. Do you think that that John was 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 attempting to kind of sabotage you as a director and was hoping to take over? The last time that Fred and John worked together in Europe, they the, they forced the director to quit and John took over. So that well, so I it's, was, set, I was set, set up for that. My agent kept saying, quit, quit, you know. Yeah. Mm. You know. And so when you so when you when you when they did take the movie and they recut it from you. Uh, you well, eventually they, they, they wouldn't let me in the editing room. Oh, right, right. They so you didn't get Fred's to edit it. I was Fred's right. editor on three pictures. And so when you went and you talked told us about this, how you went and you talked to Bob Remy and you guys had a good conversation. You were able to shoot a day at New World well, and I, do I, a re I had gone through speech therapy. Right. And you talked to him about his his nephew was a stutterer and, yeah, and you, yeah, you talked to him about I, all that. What, but what, like what, but what did, I did during the time that they were editing, I went into heavy speech ther- therapy where you had to accept yourself as a stutterer and mm-hmm. stutter openly. And, and it only works if you're desperate because stutterers don't want to stutter openly. Right. right or right. accept themselves. So, yeah. But I was armed. I, I was through the therapy. And, you know. Yeah. So when you recut that, they had already released the film. No, no, no. They hadn't? No. So, because the the Blu-ray that I that I have of Out of Control uh, has your cut as 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 the main cut, and then it also has a theatrical cut, which they, is they, they brought in an editor who's a very nice guy. I liked him a lot. He did the behind the scenes thing really well, but he tried to put it back to the original cut, mm. and then they showed that they wanted to restore that cut before I recut it. They didn't like my mm. recut, but that first cut never made it out. Okay, so that never got released then. It was finished, but it didn't get re- before it got released. Got I it. Convinced New World let me recut it, but then he took it upon himself to make it to get it to be as close to what that original cut was, and I I still can't even watch it. But sure. so on, on the Blu-ray, the non-theatrical version is the one that he recut, trying to restore it to the original. Yeah, it was a uh, trying to. You know, yeah, whatever it was. I don't know. Yeah, I couldn't. But that but that version, though, never made it. Your version is the one that made it to yeah, theaters. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, okay. That's interesting. Okay, cool. That's good to know. And so you shot that. When you did go back and reshoot, was that whole opening sequence for the kids? Was that I the shot thing that in New World at Roger's stage. Okay. Mm. Okay. He from Mutant, yeah. Okay. And I also shot the Berlin video there. Masquerade. Yeah, yeah. Masquerade. That's awesome. Okay, so we already talked about Grunt. So let me talk really quickly about a couple other projects you worked on. Because post, you know, Grunt and all this, you start going on some other projects. You're working for Transworld. But there's some other things you worked on. Like, did you edit on Vamp? I did. I was second editor. Okay, so you did second editing on Vamp. How did that come about? Um, they needed a second editor, and Don Borchers knew my work, and he hired me. And I, I did a lot of the action stuff, you know. Don Borcher's name comes up again um, <laughs> all the time, all the time. Yeah. Um, that's, that's amazing. And so, so really in a way, this is, this is like phase, phase four, I guess, of your new world life. Because, catch. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you also then you did the uh, trailer for return of the killer tomatoes. Yeah. But I'd looked at it. They changed it. Oh it no. A trailer where, it had all these people running in different cities on the bottom. I, I, it's in my my autobiography. Bi- bi- I have the original, but they changed. They took a lot of it, but then they did a different narrator and they made it 
they kept repeating the same thing over. It was tacky. Uh, yeah. Girl, because so so you at that point were still also in between projects editing of trailers for New World. But were you yeah. like officially doing that or just sort of on a freelance? No, basis? there were two trailer producers that I kept working for throughout my career. When I wasn't directing, I had to earn money and I would cut trailers for them. Straub Weissman and Mark Pierce. And they had to, they were competing companies working with the same client. Mm-hmm. <laughs> New World. So well, they yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. cut each other and whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I the, um, reg- the reason that all this came together is because uh, uh, Dave Parker I met on on Twitter. And he loves your show. Loves your show. Yeah, yes. Oh. He's a great guy. He's very big supporter and he's a great dude. And we're going to have him on eventually oh, on good. here as oh, well. Good. So, but he's the one who put me in contact with you and he said he learned a ton from you at that oh, time. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. So, but I mean, that, that was Ken, uh, um, Killer Tomatoes was his first job as an, an apprentice or assistant. So, you do you work directly with him uh, and, on and, that trailer? And the producer of that trailer is the one who got me in touch with Andy Warhol, Nelson Lyon. Right, right. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, I All chatted right. with him a little bit about it after our interview with you about Grunt. And so he told me a little bit more about Nelson Lyon and stuff. It's really great. And who, of course, wrote some of the trailer stuff for the Godzilla 1985 trailer that uh, Tony Randall has put together. Mm-hmm. I think he did all the, the, the writing for that. Yeah, Tony, um, Tony kept hi- hi- hiring him for, for trailers. And to- Tony was head of post at New, New World. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, he worked his way up from assistant, you know, on battle, assistant effects editor to head of post. Did he work on Mutant, Tony Randall? Uh, yeah, um, I'm pretty sure he was in the effects department. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Which, by the way, I, I did get to see the cut of Mutant, and I know that you had said it's a little blown out, but like it's so great. Oh, it really you. is great. I, I think it's it's it's. I can't wait to talk about that movie. That's all I can say. We haven't talked about. <laughs> oh, we haven't done an episode on that one, but no, I can't we haven't wait. yet. It's yeah. such a, honestly, I think even Forbidden World. I know it's not exactly what you wanted, but I really enjoyed that. But seeing Mutant, I was like, oh, this movie is just. It's a classic. It's great. I know it's not. I'm sure for to your eye, it's 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 hard to watch, but to mine, it was. I loved it. So it's not it's not so much that you know. I mean, I, I was a good executioner, as I said in the book. You know, mm. it's like I made it look like it was meant to be this way. But you know, when you lose twenty good laughs, yeah, laugh, no, yeah. My whole philosophy was, you know, you're doing a movie, and every seven minutes, someone's going to die. And you're making love in between. Mm-hmm. You, know, I gotta, you know, it's like, you know, you gotta have some humor. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. You can't look at that seriously. You gotta yeah, entertain. Right. You yeah. gotta like know that that the filmmaking is ahead of the audience. And almost like you every know? sci-fi horror film of that kind of ilk these days, or, or even made sense in the '90s and 2000s, they all have huge moments of of comedy. Yeah, um, and that, was, that was when. Um, American Werewolf in London came out and that was yeah. like, that like transformed everything. It was like, you could be funny and have horror. It worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. Rod, but Rogers said, you know, when I argue about that, he said that didn't make any money. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, it depends on word of mouth and reviewers sure. don't pick mm-hmm. up on horror. You know, it, now it is, but then, you know, it, I mean, his whole philosophy to make money was that you, you 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 tour the prints. You only make two to three hundred prints for the whole country, and you tour them. Mm-hmm. You don't 
going is known we didn't have national releases then for low budget yeah. you know even the big budget movies they would open in, in in new york and let the reviews spread and you open in cities so he toured with these prints and you would go maximum two weeks in a city in a drive drive and only if it was a huge hit would you stay a third but the third week you're out of there moving away so you had to deliver horror as horror and comedy is a silly com- comedy yeah 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 um to get back to a couple of quick things that you had worked on you did second unit on critters too i did that was so much fun <laughs> i love critters uh, too but, but that was fantastic new- yeah, that was new new line for right, Robert right. Shea, and I had a great talk with him because the first film I made was uh, uh, I was an anti-war radical, and um, I started a film department at Bennington where I was there on a scholarship at an all-girls school, and um, <laughs> uh, I my first film was a soldier's erotic fantasy at his point of death called War, and it was a two and a half minute movie, and it got accepted. It won the Brooklyn Arts and Cultural Association Film Festival and the New York First Erotic Film Festival. (laughs) 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 And uh, I had the screening at the Metropolitan Museum of Art with all the the award, the the, the festival winners. And it's a long, narrow theater with an entrance in in the middle of the audience. And when my film comes up, all the mothers took their kids and stood up and like made a mad dash for the exit, creating a huge traffic jam. I was sitting towards the back. I couldn't even see the film. I was reaching out. But the, by the time they got to the door, the movie was over. So, yeah. <laughs> but for the first annual New York Erotic Film Festival, you were paid to tour the co- colleges. And you were paid according to how long the film was. So I took off the main title and ran it twice. <laughs> <laughs> but Bob Shea was in charge of that. The company was called Saliva Films. And so after a screening of Critters 2, I reminded Bob Shea about that, and we had the best talk about that. It was so Aww. funny. It's a shame that name didn't stick, Saliva Films. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do on Critters 2? Like, you did Second Unit, but what... what all the Critter you? action. That was, the, that's what you did? Like all the good stuff. And you know that ball? The, and the, the yeah, the giant the ball? Sure. Uh, my father-in-law came up with that... Um, because I, you know, he 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 builds airplanes in his backyard from uh, wrecked aircraft, and he takes the he took the uh, frame of wrecked aircraft and would spend two years building out the plane. So I told him the pro- I wanted the camera to go around in three three sixty, and so he said you should get one of those big you know cable spools that the electrical companies use, mm-hmm. and and it's and hollow it out and put the camera in there and have people turn the thing around and it worked beautifully wow that's awesome oh, that's it's such a cool effect i mean it's like yeah. the big mo- it's the big moment in the movie is yeah. when they all join forces all right um you worked on the final terror you were head of post-production for the final no terror? no i that was the credit i got i recut the movie okay, uh, okay. and so nothing like cutting re uh, andy D- D- davis's movie he was really pissed Oh, okay. Um, but it was Joe Roth's first pr- producing movie and Sam Arkoff's first film and last film, but only because he decided that uh, he had left uh, American International Pictures, a- AIP, yeah, okay. and started yeah. his own company, Arkoff International P- Pictures. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and totally <laughs> different. <laughs> 
right, so I, I recut the movie and my wife did, did the score. It's great. So it was just released on vinyl by Death Waltz. Oh, nice. And they, they released the, the mutant score, the forbidden score of hers, which is just a great score. And um, tracking that down, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, um, um, and, but I, I was talk, talking to Sam after you know, he saw the last cut and he said, you know, that he, he said, this is my last picture. I said, why? The movie's going to do well, you know. And he said, I can't stand being on the other side of the desk. Because mm. you know, when people came to him, he knew he had them because they'd mm -hmm. been to the big ones. And so he was experiencing that and he couldn't take it. Wow. Mm. Oh, wow. And that was when you had to recut it. Is that because they weren't in? in, in uh, it was slow. It was yeah. really slow. Because for a horror film, it seems like Andy Davis didn't really want to make a horror film. No, I, I, didn't, I never actually talked with him. I just saw the film, and uh, it's um, the only. It was cast as well. I love the it, cast. An amazing cast, yeah. Uh, 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 Joe Pantoliano. Yeah, is he's really unbelievable. Guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. You also did uh, the Sleeping Car with Doug Curtis, who was a producer, who did a bunch of things for New World, like uh, Black Moon Rising. Well, I I'd gotten a reputation, you know, certainly from Mutant with sub subliminal editing. And right. people just weren't doing that on film. It's popular, it became popular on MTV, but to do it on film, it's very costly because you can't actually splice the negative. So it all has to be shot optically and all the frames have to be identified. So it's very time consuming to finish it and to make it you know, look right. And Doug gave me a speech like Jimmy. He said, my fate depends on you. You know, as great as you can do, you can do it. And that's why I do all those crazy things. You know? <laughs> that's amazing. Like just an incredible bunch of stuff that I didn't even know you had worked on as well. It's so amazing. But it, let's talk just briefly about the other phase that you go into from there, which is a documentary phase, which is a phase that you're still in. And it's incredible to see like you're you've had an amazing amount of success in the documentary field. Uh, how did you start getting involved in documentary well, filmmaking? My last film was Intimate Stranger. Uh, right, and, for, um, for um, Showtime, right? Uh, well, yes. And before it came out, I got a job from a friend uh, to do the, to direct segments in Baltimore for the first spinoff of Cops called um, uh, Emergency Call. And we were to follow the fire department around. Mm -hmm. And um, so we got to Baltimore and my wife was five months pregnant. And we went to see the same ultrasound doctor as our first child. And uh, he um, said that she had a, he, he said that she had a bicornate uterus. And, 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 and I said, why didn't you see that the first time? And he said, I just didn't pick it up. In reality, the baby was not in the uterus. Mm. Uh, we just discovered recently the baby was talked to the doc doctor who was there for most of the time. They discovered her under the liver, but she oh, was no. she was <laughs> abdominal. She wasn't in the uterus. Oh my like gosh. a plane ride, uh, uh, the the actual the placenta, which was on top of the uterus, actually severed, and my wife was hemorrhaging, and we didn't know that, we, but she was in pain. And so when we got there, we went to the hotel, and I called U University of Maryland Hospital, and they said if the pain lasts the night, come in, and it did, and. We went in and um, uh, and it took them eight hours to discover that she was carrying the baby abdominally. And luckily this young surgeon was there who had assisted. Oh. Um, 
Sorry not to crack up. Sorry. No, no, my gosh. Um, who had a, a, assisted on an abdominal sur- sur- surgery and um, he saved both my wife and the baby. And usually neither of them survive. Mm. Wow. Um, and um, and then the doctor, um, and that was the time during all the the HIV time and you couldn't transfuse. So my wife lost, you know, at least two thirds or more of her blood. And, mm. um, but they, they came out with the baby and seven and a half inches. They said, look at her, she won't be here tomorrow. And the, so the chances of survival were 500,000 to one. And they said, if she's there tomorrow, it'll be 250,000 to one. But, um, and it was on our three-year-old's birthday. Mm. Anyway, so, right. um, so, make, so, so we, um, I had to make the job last because we were there for a while yeah. and there weren't any fires. So I said, how about if I follow shootings and stabbings? That's how I my money. And yeah, man. I, I reported to work at six or seven and worked till two or three in the morning. And then I went to the hospital and read novels to my daughter because sound was the only way you could really communicate because you couldn't touch the baby for a really yeah. long time because the skin is just too thin. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so um, Intimate Stranger came out and it was Showtime's highest rated movie. But I, you know, and I had a, I remember this one call with the producer who called me and I told him my story and he said, when you come back, give me a call. You know, <laughs> so, you know there was no way I, you know, I yeah. stayed, I, I had the choice. Do I go back to my, follow my work or do I stay with my family? And it was no choice at all. I stayed. Of course, right. We moved into the job stop and I moved into the Ronald McDonald house with our family. We were, we were the people there who were hoping to live, living with people whose children were ter- terminal with can- mm. can- cancer. But it was a very friendly, support, po- su- supportive place. And our three-year-old entered a preschool right next door. And, um, and then Shane, our youngest, the flight across country, um, this, this is a great story, Boogie Wineglass, who was portrayed by Mickey Rourke, in diner yeah right so he's a real pr- person and huh. uh, we were looking to try to find a flight a medical flight back to los angeles after shane after three and a half months she was off of oxygen she wasn't quite three pounds yet but you know um but but she was healthy enough she was off of oxygen and so she was healthy enough they thought to fly uh, and uh, but all the medical flights, like Schwarzenegger's flight, were only designed to people who were dying. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't find a living flight, <laughs> and wow. they wrote us, wrote us up in the Baltimore Sun. And um, uh, Boogie recognized the name because he grew up next to my father's bakery, and he was poor. And uh, my father always gave him cook- cookies. Mm. So um, he supported, he did the Air Medical Mercy flight in Virginia and Baltimore area, Maryland. They worked out a flight where they had a geriatric flight crew and um, uh, we we couldn't fly with them. We flew commercially. We saw them off and then flew commercially and waited, but they they could only fly 10,000 feet. Uh, And um, 
they uh, switched crews halfway, but they charted a path over different NICCUs in case anything went, went wrong. They could t- mm. touch down and be there. Wow. wow. And they flew through the Rockies and made it. And uh, <laughs> I called the Guinness Book of World Records to see who was the smallest transcontinental flight, <laughs> person to fly transcontinentally. And they said it wasn't a competitive area. <laughs> <laughs> so did it make it? Did it make the book? Well, what? Did it make the? No, they didn't make it up. No. Oh, okay. No. Uh, you know all these preemies lining up to break the record. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you know that was just the beginning, of course. And we had more time in the hospital here, and you know my wife had to, you know, was gaining. At, energy but i needed to be a daytime child care you know and um, sure uh and then um uh when um you know she was getting close to one she was getting you know um she was getting better and i could go back to work and uh there was a job the computers i had done computer editing and trailer i started i kept working i started doing trailers again once we were back i would do trailers at night while everyone slept, but I was home for the, you know, taking care of the children. And I had the ability to stay up, you know, and I don't, I don't know where it comes from, probably because of stuttering, because uh, I felt normal when the world slept. So mm-hmm. I stayed mm-hmm. up all night. And I think I got a lot of my film education by watching Audie Murphy war movies, because they were mm-hmm. always on late night in Baltimore. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, so, um, uh, there was a job that came up. Uh, Turner was doing a six-hour Native American series, and they were having trouble. It was too depressing and boring, and they needed another editor uh, to come in. And also, they weren't they part of the show. They divided it was six hours, and they only had two editors so far. And they needed another editor for another two hours, but then they needed uh, some kind of change. And this the producer was Canadian, and he really liked me, and. Um, I had made um, two documentaries about stuttering. <laughs> mm-hmm. I saw those, and I didn't have a voiceover, and uh, I was against having voiceovers. And I and they, they they gave me they gave me they told me to start with the Northeast, which was about the boarding schools. And then they said the the director will be here in two weeks. Just watch the footage, and so I cut it. And uh, I Robbie Robertson was doing the music. But the music and the other shows were just really depressing, mm-hmm. and, and and it was like hitting over, over the head with tra- tragedy. And I went to v- visit him, and I saw that he was, um, uh, he had a loft across from the New New Art Theater, was filled with instruments. Really inspiring place, and what a lovely human being. And uh, uh, I listened to the music he was doing for the album. It was just beautiful, just really inspiring. And he was taking tra- traditional Indian music and contemporizing it, you know. Um, and I, I've loved Bob Dylan and the band since I was a teen, teen, teenager. So, although my mother always called him Bob Dylan. <laughs> maybe she's anyway. been saying it right we've been saying it wrong I don't know. <laughs> so i asked him if i could have his music without the lyrics and he gave it to me and that's how i scored the movie oh, wow. and it just transformed it it made it made it a spiritual you know it wasn't can't say a positive thing but it made you feel that the right. storytellers were really brave and communicating 
mm. you know, and that, and you could feel inspiration for the culture and that it was being kept alive by these people, regardless of the tra tra tragedy and the kind of work that, yeah. the greater the tra tragedy, the more important the storytelling of it was, you know? Mm -hmm. And I discovered that way of doing it. And then my friend Rick Carter, who was Spielberg's production designer, and I gave him his first job on my student film, Skin, at AFI, and we've been friends since. We're still close friends. Um, uh, he, he said, after I did the Native American, I took over, I was editing five of the six hours hands-on and supervised the six. And I was there all the time. And it, I was working on three different systems. And it was a major, I really just was discovering a new world of film, film, filmmaking with that and um and so i so when the job was over rick asked me what i was going to do and i said i'm ready to go back in the movies and he said you can't you're too good at this uh and and besides my buddy steven spielberg is starting the show foundation he needs you so <laughs> i'm going to bring you over there and he said I should volunteer my services and do an eight minute reel for free and to show what I could do. And I got Lightworks to donate a computer and I did the eight minutes and Stephen loved it and Turner loved it, but I insisted that it would go without a narrator and they didn't trust it. And they said that I had to do it on spec and they would give me back pay if I did it. And I did it and they gave me back pay. And, I and that's that's won. survivors of the Holocaust. You're and then that one, I won a Peabody and an Emmys for directing and editing. So, you know, nice. Now, had you known Spielberg at all because of your association with Julia Phillips, or had you? No, been... no, they were kind of at each other's throats. Okay, okay. Honors. But interesting, yeah. I mean, amazing. And like, what from going to to cutting one of the nurses' movies, you know, to. To working with uh, Spielberg and and putting together such inspiring stories, that's just it's an amazing career. It's amazing, and you're still working. You're still at it today. Um, you, you got a from if IMDb is correct, you still have a movie that's that you. They, I think you're editing Picasso's Christ. So you're still you're still editing. Still. Oh directing. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm editing. Yeah, I'm still. I mean, I I, I basically um, am in the role of a film do doctor. That's what I've done most of my documentary career because I found, first of all, it's another thing that's like, <laughs> I, you know, when you win a Peabody and two Emmys, you have more awards than the people who you're applying to work for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they don't want to hire you. No. <laughs> really. And, wow. I believe it. And yeah. I tried making movies, documentaries of my own, but I'm insisting on no narrator. So I can't have a script. You have mm. to trust me. And, and so I started two movies on my own at my own expense with the, with the back pay, I could afford to, you know, invest in my own movies. And I did two right. movies. One, I visualized the, I have a dream speech. Mm. And uh, two, I, um, the TV, the person who was the head of post, on the completion for Survivors of the Holocaust, um, started the TV Academy's archive. And um, uh, I was walking um, late at night and rain, lightning struck about, you know, because I was exercising, lightning struck about, it started rain, lightning struck about, it felt like 20 feet from me. Wow. Uh, I got a message, Sheldon Leonard had died that weekend and I got a message from him to make a movie about him. And it was like really weird. And, 
I called my friend at the TV Academy and I said, do you have an interview of Sheldon? And Sheldon Leonard is the person who uh, directed and produced the Danny Thomas show. You know him because he's the bartender in It's a Wonderful Life. And then he created created the first spinoff with Andy Griffith and the second spinoff with Gomer Pyle. He he produced the Dick Van Dyke show. You know, he he did I Spy. He took the camera out of the edit, out of Los Angeles and went around the world making things. And, and he established the writers' room. Major major guy. And I did a documentary. Yeah. And and the TV Academy was updating, interviewing the people like Mary Tyler Moore and Carl Reiner, and giving it to me. And I was putting it in. And that film still hasn't been sold. And the I Have a Dream speech. I now have it as a four screen quad. And, and I've, I've tried every year to get it made. I'm still trying to get those made. Um, and so, um, uh, but I've been able to, but with, I did old, old Man River after that, where I took uh, a one woman play and turned, it was about the Japanese American internment camps. And mm-hmm. my father was Jerry Fujikawa, who played all the Asian roles in so many movies. He was even the Chinese gardener. The, the, he was a Japanese gardener in, in China, Chinatown. But he was also the Chinese houseboy in the TV show Green Acres or Green Gables with Jean-Jacques mm-hmm. Gabor. Mm-hmm. You know, he just played in one movie. He played a hundred Japanese people who were killed. Oh my god! <laughs> but anyway, wow. and, and 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 that never got picked up. You know, uh, and uh, so I I've been hired. I, I I when movies are in trouble, my hope my I'm a person with a singular cure. The doctor with one cure, I take out the narrator. And usually people have interviewed a lot of people. So I, and for a while, so I go into the interviews and I create the story with the storytellers and find a new composer to generate, because I use music as a narrative guide in a way. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I've done the same. So I can't get hired in the beginning, mm-hmm. but I get hired when people are, are in need of someone who can help them. Mm-hmm. So it's, an incredible career. I I, uh, I have one last question though, which was: so, if do you think you using the footage from from um, Battle Beyond the Stars and then using some of the sets of Galaxy of Terror to make Mutant, or at least the opening sequence of Mutant Forbidden World, is that why uh, Roger had the idea to take all the footage from Battle Beyond the Stars and make Space Raiders? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. There it is. Absolutely. There it is. <laughs> um, but the book is called Cellular Wars. You need to buy it. You can get it through Amazon. You should get it right now. It's a terrific book. It's great. Alan, I cannot thank you enough for the time you have given us, uh, how open you've been about your life and your Mm -hmm. career. Yeah, we're incredibly grateful for your time. Uh, I mean, it's such a joy to to talk with you. You've you've had such an incredible career and covered so many different facets of the filmmaking process from director to editor to being the person to come in and do the cleanup to be the to, to be the cleaner when someone can't doesn't know how to make something work. It's just ah, oh, so it's, thank you so much for sharing yeah. all of the all of your your stories with us. I, I have one more that I want to share if I can because it kind of defines the last de- decade of my life. Sure. Um, so as, as a student at AFI, the biggest inspiring t- teaching moments were when they had the Harold Lloyd seminars where a master filmmaker would come and uh, you spend two weeks watching all of his movies, his or her, in this case, her, his mo- movies, 
um, and uh, and it was without a moderator, and you were in a living room at the Doheny Mansion with this master filmmaker, and I um, and some of them were recorded, most of them weren't, and so I, I bugged AFI twelve years ago about what they had left over from that time, and they said uh, they have a few things, but it's not worth it. They're all in bad shape. It's in a closet, and we're going to throw them out. And if you want it, you can have it. So I went there and I found Frank Capra. Um, uh, after he wrote his autobiography, Hitchcock at the end of his life, Truffaut right after Close Encounters, and Spielberg at right after Close Encounters, young Steven mm. Spielberg, wow. John Huston towards the end of his life, uh, and David Lean on audio. And I was actually at the David Lean se seminar. Wow. Um, and so I've spent all my spare extra time putting together this five part series. Uh, art of directing uh, and um, I've shown them all at the at the Dallas Video Fest um, and I've just completed that and I'm trying to put that together as a series so you know but that's cool. amazing yeah. I would love and love what love I did to, to restore that. it because it was it was like whenever the footage was really bad I would just cut to other I would cut to to, to their films Mm. And, uh, and so I was able to, and, you know, could hide a uh, bread stuff. And it's, it's really inspiring, you know? Um, and um, David Lena had the particular challenge of not having any visual on, on, on him. So, I, so, but I had all of his movies. And so like, like the beginning is just his train shots. Hmm. You know, wow. just, he's just yeah. totally inspiring filmmaker. God, that's awesome. Um, that's so but, cool. Yeah, I mean, you have had so many like ups and downs and you keep chugging away. And like the fact that you're still working on something like that, like it's I mean, we're really just so inspired by you. And uh, and and, you know, it, 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 you've got an incredible we just life do story. a dumb podcast. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> we just talk uh, and oh, push yeah. record. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, so thank you again so much sure. uh, for being here yes, and um, we'll have you on again next year for another five hour interview extravaganza. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right. That was our part two, part two of talking to Alan Holzman, space Raiders. Mm. We figured it out. We Alan it. Holzman is the reason we have space Raiders. Everybody <laughs> we figured God it bless. out. God bless. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I know that um, when I listened to part two, part two, I felt like there is still a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. I feel like there's still so much to talk about. I see a part three, part two coming. <laughs> part one so, of part three. Yeah. We, we, we'll have to do part three. No, we're going to skip to part parts. two of part three. We're going to have and part then we'll one. do part one. Yes. I will say, uh, in, in all honesty, um, I read his book after the second time that we talked. You finished. Him. You had I read finished it. it. Yeah, I read, read about it. half of it. I finished it. And in talking with him, I had because I had an image of, you know, who he is, his personality, what he went through, like reading the book, you really find yourself rooting for him. Like this mm -hmm. guy is going to help pull this thing out. He's really dealing with all these uh influences all around him, you know, personality conflicts. Uh, structure of his editing bay conflicts. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's he's facing everything you possibly could. The fact that he didn't just pack up his bag and say, 
forget it. I'm out of here. Don't need to do this. Goodbye mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Uh, amazing. But it speaks to the kind of person that he is um, and the, the it's like sense of ownership and responsibility he had to that movie. It makes, I, I think, for anyone who hasn't read the book yet, listen to this episode and then read the book because I think it gives you a greater appreciation of the kind of person that you're reading about. Hopefully they have listened to this episode because if they're listening to this part, they have listened to this episode. Like, I, unless they skip the entire interview just to get to our wrap up. <laughs> they may I mean, they, they may have maybe. a memory like mine. <laughs> <laughs> or they kind of listen to the that's... entire thing and they're like, man, I really got to listen to that interview. <laughs> <laughs> that interview is going to be great once I listen to it. I what did talking, I do for the past hour and a half? I was talking about episode part three, part two. That right. we still do. That's <laughs> wait until that one. Wait, wait until then. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, we hope you enjoyed this interview, uh, a part two of part two of this interview in our Alan Holzman month here on the New World Pictures podcast. Like and review us if you can. Follow us on the socials and definitely follow us on the socials for your chance to win a free signed copy of Celluloid Wars, which is Alan Holzman's new book about the making of Battle Beyond the Stars. You're not going to want to miss out on that. So make sure you follow us on Instagram and Twitter if you aren't already for your chance to win a free copy of Celluloid Wars. Thanks again for listening to this episode. We've got more great interviews coming up. We've already yeah. recorded a couple. we got more on the way. Very exciting. Uh, and we've got some great movies coming up too. So make sure you're following us. Make sure you're ready to listen to us as we go through this journey of watching every movie released by New World Pictures and talking to the people that made these movies and worked behind the scenes. So we'll see you next time on the New World Pictures Podcast. Bye, everybody.